We all have that one friend, that friend who, at seemingly random times, says something so out of the blue, so ridiculous, that it's pretty clear to you that there's been a conversation that they've been having with themselves in their head that you have not been privy to. If you're on the football team, this friend's name might be RJ. If you're in my family, this, this friend's name might be me. Um, but it just happens. You're sitting there, you're doing your homework, and, and the room is, is quiet. And then all of a sudden, a voice calls out and says, man, yeah, that, that, that's it. I would much rather fight one horse-sized duck. And you're like, what are you talking about, bro? And, and as you talk to this person, you realize that they've been wrestling with this reality of whether or not you'd rather fight, you know, a hundred duck-sized horses or one horse-sized duck. And they've been in prayer over this and they've been in fasting over it. And they finally decide that, that they want to, to fight the, 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 the horse-sized duck. And, and they're wrong because ducks are these petulant, sassy creatures. And I could only imagine the horrors that would befall us if there was a, 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 a horse-sized duck. It would be like uh, uh, the Stay Puft Marshall. Marshmallow man. It would be it would be frightening and terrible. So just so you guys know, if you ever have the choice, you would much rather fight a hundred duck-sized horses. Um, but but it takes a while for your friend to catch you up on the conversation that's already been happening and all of the thought that's gone into this. You may feel that way to an extent tonight as you step into Romans chapter 3 with us. You may feel that way because there's been a conversation happening between Paul and between the church at Rome that we've kind of been looking in on and that we've been trying to apply to to, to our lives. And we're kind of catching this conversation midstream. So if you weren't at chapel last Sunday or if you haven't been to chapel with us yet this semester, this kind of stuff might seem confusing to you. So, So let me catch you up a little bit about the conversation that's been happening in this place. Paul has been talking with the church at Rome, trying to answer some fundamental questions. Fundamentally, he's trying to wrestle with this church to answer the question of, of what is it that saves us? And, and they've, they've knocked off the list, you know, Jewish customs. There were some, some Jewish customs that the Jewish Christians at the time felt like the Gentiles had to adopt if they were going to be full members in the body of Jesus Christ. And so Paul has a discussion with them and says, no, 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 they don't have to do those things. And so then they started talking about the, the, the law. Does the law have to be followed to a T? And what Paul said was, no, see, you're using the law, this thing that is meant to, to, to humble us, and, and you're using it in a way that's exclusionary. You're using it to push people out. You're using it to, to, to puff up your own chest. And so the law is not the thing that saves you. And so then when we get to the beginning of Romans chapter three, in those first eight verses, this conversation continues. And, and, and the question is asked, well, then if the law doesn't save us, can we just chuck the law? And then we pick up the conversation then in Romans three, verse nine, where Paul says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. And so this idea of just throwing the law out, of, of, of just chucking it because God will be righteous no matter what. Paul, in, in, a, in a way that um, is, is very uh, courtroom-like in this discussion, as he talks about guilt and as he talks about innocence and as he talks about worth and as he talks about value, he essentially says, that, that, that's a clown question, bro. 
That's a clown question. Of course, we're not better off without the law. Of course, we're not better off without the statutes that God gave us and that God has handed down from generation to generation. Of course, we're not better off without those markers that have helped define who the people are that truly worship the one living God. And so from then on, as we move from verses 10 through through verse 20, Paul is talking with the church in Rome about what the purpose of the law is. What is the purpose of the law? If the law is not going to be that thing that saves us, then what will it be? And Paul goes to his Hebrew Bible. He goes to what we would call the Old Testament. And then he rattles off a bunch of quotes to the church at Rome. He says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of of asps is on their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And And their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And man, if that isn't a a dark picture, if that isn't a a bleak picture, if that's not a picture that fills our noses with the dank stench of evil and of death. And the picture that, that Paul is painting here is the picture of the sinfulness of the heart of humanity. Paul is painting a picture here of what happens when we follow our desires and when we push the law aside. And Paul paints a picture here that is, 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 a, is a, an end that is bent on destruction. When Jesus talks about the adversary, the devil, there's a point at which Jesus calls him the thief. And Jesus says that the thief has come to to seek and to kill and to destroy. But I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And so we see there from the words of Jesus, and we see there even looking back before the words of Jesus, from the words of the Hebrew Bible, from the words of the Old Testament, that this thing, this evil, this, this sin, this thing that leads us away from God, this thing that pulls us away from God, this thing that is deep in our hearts, this thing that, that we will follow, if we don't have the law to be our plumb line and to be our guide, it is bent on our destruction. It will not stop until it eats all of us. It will not stop until it chews us up and spits us out. Until a dog comes and eats what has been spitting out and chews us up again and swallows us. It will not stop until we are washed through the gutter and down into the sewers. That's what sin unabated does in our lives. And Paul sees a world around him that is full of sin, where, where everyone is, is, is depraved and it touches them to their core. And we see that the ways in which they use their mouths do not glorify God. In fact, he speaks of their words as poison. And he talks about the roads that they travel, the paths that they travel being paths of, of ruin and of misery. He talks about their, their actions as being people who are quick to shed the blood of others. And it's, it's, it's infected them to the point 
where there is no fear of God in their eyes. You can always tell how much somebody truly believes in their actions when you look in their eyes. Because sometimes somebody will be doing something that they know is wrong and their eyes get shifty and they look around to see who's watching. Or you look deep into their eyes and you see a remorsefulness or an uncertainty. But these people that Paul explains, this human condition has very much lost that looking around to see what God wants. And it's lost remorsefulness. And there's no fear of God in the eyes of people. And then he goes on in verse 19 to say this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And in that verse 19 there, Paul uses some very specific courtroom imagery. When Paul talks about that the, 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 the mouth might be stopped, he's literally saying that, that, that when people are not living with the law as their guide, they have, they have no defense. They have no defense. And even when they do live as the law with their guide, they have no defense when you were in Paul's day and age, and if you were in the courtroom and you were defending yourself, when it came to a place where you had no other words to express your innocence, you would literally put your hand over your mouth. And that would be a sign to the judge, and that would be the, the sign in, in the courtyard, in the courtroom of all the people of your village or your city who had gathered to see the proceedings, that there was nothing left for you to say. Your defense had been exhausted. There would be times that we even see this in the New Testament where someone from outside of the person who is giving their own defense, their mouth is forced to stop because they are struck in their mouth. When Jesus is, is, is in the court and when he's defending himself, he is actually struck in his mouth. And that is supposed to be assigned to Jesus and assigned to the people who are watching the proceedings. They, they, no, this man is not innocent. This man cannot be acquitted. This man has no reasonable defense. This is something in the book of Acts that we see happen to Paul as well. As Paul is defending himself, he is struck in the mouth. And that is a sign to him and to everybody around him that this person is guilty. And so when Paul is writing to the Romans, and when he talks about the, 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 those who are under the law speaking so that every mouth might be stopped and the whole world might be held accountable to God, he's saying this, that look, you can follow the law but the law will not acquit you. You can follow the law as best as you can, but you will not be found innocent under the law. You can follow the law as best you can, but the law is not going to be what saves you. And so we've talked about the pervasiveness of sin. We've talked about the depravity of sin, and we've kind of talked about how the law is the thing that can't save us. And so then, what is the good news? What is the good news? We have four books in our New Testament that are called Gospels. And those Gospels, man, those are supposed to be good news. They're supposed to be something uplifting about living a life that is defined by the work and the character of Jesus Christ. But, but this whole exercise that Paul is, is talking about seems very futile. 
And it seems very fatalistic. And if there's no way that we can try hard enough, then what is it that we can do? And why has God even given us this thing if it seems as though it's going to crush us instead of liberate us and set us free? Well, Paul's getting there. And if you've read through Romans before, you know that the very next passage after this starts to talk about the gospel. It starts to talk about the good news. Paul, so to speak, is going to, to do the theological quan. He's going to hit it, and he is going to hit it hard. But, but he's not there yet. He's just stretching out. See, see, Paul is going to hit us with a theological uppercut, but right now he's just jabbing, and his feet are just happy, and he's wearing us down. He's roping us dopes. See, Paul is going to make a gospel cake. And it's going to be filled with, with yummy, fluffy good news of a flavor of our choosing. And it's going to be filled with, with layers on the inside of good news icing. And on the outside, it's going to be filled with this yummy, yummy buttermilk good news. But right now, he's not letting us eat that cake. He's just dropping crumbs. And one of those crumbs that, that Paul is dropping there in the midst of this super duper duper depressing verses 10 through 18. Because in verses 10 through 18, Paul goes through a, a litany of Old Testament texts. And he quotes from Psalm 14. And he quotes from Psalm 5. And he quotes from Psalm 140. And he quotes from Psalm 10 and Psalm 36. From Ecclesiastes 720 and Isaiah 59 verses 14 through 21. And one of the things that all of those texts have in common is though these quotes that he gives us, so they talk about the depravity of our condition and the darkness of our world and the way that sin suffocates us, both from the inside and from the outside. Each of those texts come around. And they come around to talk about the unwavering promises of God. And they come around to talk about this concept of covenant justice, of covenant justice. How the people of God in the Old Testament understood that the promises of God would come true because God had promised them. That the deal that was set up with God wasn't do this and this and this and then I will be good. No, the, the covenant that was with God was God said, I'm going to be a God who is full of steadfast love. I'm going to be a God who is full of justice and goodness and mercy and all of the things that we know God to be. And there was nothing that the people of God could do. No darkness in their hearts, no darkness in their actions that could keep God from being God. And not only that, the plans of God would never ever be thwarted. And so all the people really had to do was live in the promise that God had already made. Because you could take that promise to the bank. It would not be undone and God would not go back on his word. And so that's the good news. Those are the good news morsels that are kind of sprinkled in, in this picture of bleakness that Paul paints. Those are those good news morsels that we're going to find fully developed and, and beautifully developed on Wednesday when Pastor Joe Hishma from Topeka Bible Church is here. But for now, we just have to live in, in anticipation of those morsels. And we need to, 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 to stand in the tension of understanding our own sin and our own depravity of understanding the sin and the depravity of the world around us. And we have to then come back to the question of knowing what saves us, which is God and God's promises. What are the markers then of following Christ? And what good is this law? Paul speaks of it in verse 20. 
For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through law comes the knowledge of sin. Since through law comes the knowledge of sin. And that's where Paul gets it for us. Where he tells us that, look, the reason that God gave you this law is because you will become desensitized to your own death. You will become desensitized to the horrors that are around you. And so God has, has given you this law to tell you not how it is, but how it should be. To give you some markers that you can strive for, that you can, can use to, to delineate yourselves from the people around you. And so that you can be humbled to the point where you are ready to accept the gospel where you're ready to accept the good news. Luther, I'm going to paraphrase Luther here because he gets real like King Jamesy in the way that he, he speaks in this original translation. But he says this essentially, the principal point of the law is to make people not better or worse, but it is to show them their sin, that by the knowledge of their sin, they may be humbled, terrified, bruised, and broken. And by this means may be driven to seek grace and so to come to the blessed seed that is Christ. Hopefully when we look at the law, we look at it and we don't, we don't look at it and say, oh yeah, I'm doing pretty good. Oh yeah, I measure up. Oh yeah, this is, this is probably just good enough to, to get in. This is good enough to, to keep that, that passing Jesus grade. This is good enough to, to keep my, my heavenly scholarship. This is enough. Hopefully when we look at the law, we say, wow, that, that exposes some raw truths about me. That exposes where I am on, on a path to my own destruction. That exposes the place where, where my words are our poison to other people that exposes the place where I seek spiritual or, or, or physical death. And hopefully in exposing that, we are even more appreciative of the grace that Jesus Christ has given us. And hopefully we are humbled to the place where we, we will run ever more and ever more quickly and ever more consistently into the arms of God who has promised to be there for us, who will always be there for us, who has provided our justification and who has experienced and given us our salvation. That is the point of the law, to have the humbleness, the humility in our hearts to know that, yes, God has saved me. And now I want that law to be a marker on my life. As the band comes up, we have an opportunity to, to respond, not an opportunity to, to, to respond thinking that we have it figured out, but an opportunity to be contemplative, an opportunity to think about what the covenant justice looks like, the opportunity to think about what is the brokenness that I experience on, on a regular basis where my sin affects other people or other people's sin affects me, and, and how can I wait on the Lord? to make real and to make true to me the promises that he has already made.